Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we have a special episode looking at democracy in the UK today, not with one of my academic colleagues, but with the leader of a UK political party. Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Regular listeners will know that normally on this podcast, we have conversations with our academic colleagues here at UCL. But this week, we're doing something a little bit different. In the first of what we hope will be an occasional series of episodes with real-world political actors, we're discussing the state of democracy in the UK today and what can be done about it with the leader of a UK political party. That party is the True and Fair Party, and its leader is Gina Miller. Gina Miller shot to fame by twice defeating the government in the courts, first on the process of Brexit and second on whether the government could prorogue or suspend Parliament in order to get its way. Now she's leading a party that characterises its central mission as cleaning up politics, modernising democracy and fighting corruption. And I'm delighted to say that Gina Miller joins me now. Gina, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's go straight to the heart of the matter. You want to strengthen our democracy. What would you say is wrong with it at present? Whichever day you wake up, whichever headline you read, I think they're exemplary stories of what's weak in our politics. And this hasn't happened overnight. What I see is the decay of a democracy that started some two, three decades ago is the lack of checks and balances, is the fact that we've relied on what many call the good chap model of government, where politicians will take it upon themselves to behave within certain parameters of integrity, honesty, um, compassion, and put the country first. And I think that is a very naive approach. Um, And uh, we have to address that. And I think we're seeing on a daily basis that modern day politicians are now stretching the elastic in that naive system to breaking point. So I do think we are at breaking point. I think we are at a point of democratic crises. So you focus there on a lack of checks and balances. I mean, I suppose we've seen a period when those in power, particularly Boris Johnson, also Liz Truss, their view was essentially that that in a democracy, delivery by government is the fundamentally important thing. Kind of democratic process isn't something that people really care about. What they care about care about is the delivery of policies, and sometimes that requires government to perhaps run roughshod a bit over over all of the rest of the niceties. Why are they wrong? Well, they well, I was going to say they would say that, of course, wouldn't they? Um, but delivery as in business, every other walk of life, depends on the quality of the individuals that are doing the delivery, the transparency of the processes, and the ability to redress when things go wrong. And none of that is applicable at the moment in the political landscape. For some reason, they have gotten away with, uh, uh, if you like, uh, pulling the, you know, the wool over people's eyes of saying, well, politics is different. It's different from every other walk of life. We don't have to obey the same rules and regulations, same governance, same levels of transparency, conflicts of interest. You know, there are many things that are happening in the political arena would not be allowed in most other walks of life. 
And I think that is the problem. In every other area, we've been seeing a push towards better governance, better accountability to consumers. And we as voters are the consumers of our democracy, um, as well as, uh, um, uh, you know, partaking in it. But it's been somehow uh, politics has been able to be carved out and put to one side that these rules don't don't apply there. And because of that, I think we are seeing the weaknesses in the delivery mechanisms. And when it comes to value for money, which is our taxpayers' money, you know, our money, I would say the delivery value for money is exceptionally poor. And what would you base that on? Can you give us some examples? I would say if you look at the conflicts of interest, if you look at the lack of due diligence, I mean, at the moment in in British politics, we have, you know, forget about what's actually gone on in procurement, VIP lanes, PPE, all those sort of things. We have a live example at the moment in a company called British Vault, which was supposed to be the biggest example of new battery technology for electric vehicles. When you look under the bonnet, the lack of due diligence of the two individuals who co-founded this company against the background of what would happen in any other sector, be it money laundering checks, due diligence on backgrounds, on CVs, on criminal records. It's astonishing that they were given the multi-million pound budgets that they were to develop a business strategy that has no reality when it comes to developing or operating in the car industry. It was basically a paper strategy. It's really interesting you're saying this because... A lot of people in the world of politics, I guess, particularly on the right of politics, people in the current government complain a great deal that the public sector is too constrained by rules and regulations and constraints and a thousand people having to check before any decision can be made. And they're imagining that, you know, this, the public sector is a, st- is a place of too many checks and balances, whereas the private sector is a place where entrepreneurialism can run free and can can create new things and you I mean you of course are someone who've who's come in quite recently to politics from the private sector world but so you're saying that actually it's the other way around it's in the private sector that it is the other way around it is balances. the other way around I mean you know you know the amount any anybody trying to put ten thousand pounds into a bank or withdraw ten thousand pounds knows the question go on your app you know you know the questions you get asked you can't just withdraw money when you know I mean it, it, it ordinary people have to live up with this if you have a fine you know in a car if you are charged um, or stopped, you have to pay a fine. You know, the way we have to live our lives, not just in business and operating, but in every walk of life, are, there are constraints, there are checks and balances, and there are laws about that we have to obey, there are rules. And in, in business, you know, the, the, there are very strict rules of conflicts of interest. I mean, in some cases, not strict enough. But, you know, the corporate responsibility for management, for executive level is significant. Um, and coming in financial services, in the pharmaceutical, it is not true. What they're trying to do, the political classes, some of them at the moment, I would say is to suggest that actually wholesale reduction of checks and balances is, is their end goal because they do not like the direction of travel the business has gone in. And I have been a particular campaigner for nearly 20 years now, calling for more transparency and checks and balances in the world of business and financial services, especially those that led to the financial crisis, the global financial crisis in 2008. And they don't like it. Many of these, the people who fund our political system, the ecosystem involved in our political system at the moment, 
are not happy with the director of travel. So, of course, they would use it as an excuse to say, well, what we need to do to have more flexibility, to promote growth, is to actually take down what they see as barriers. The only thing they're barriers to is better cultural behavior, better responsibility and better transparency. It's not a barrier for consumer protection. It is a barrier to, to profit without real purpose or without real accessibility or accountability or understanding social capital. So we've diagnosed the problem as you see it. What do you think are the key solutions? I think we have to address three things fundamentally, because the word broken Britain or whatever you want to say, the broken system decay seems so insurmountable. I think one of the truths that I'd say we need to accept is the systematic failures within our machinery of government is where we need to start. The trickle down effect, if you like, of doing that, I think will create cultural change because we have to accept that even good people who go into politics can be corrupted by power. So therefore, we, those, those checks and balances have to be in place to ensure that there isn't that corruption. It is going to happen. It's happened to lots of good people in politics throughout the ages, in not just politics, but in public life or in positions of power. So it's putting in those checks and balances before good people can stray, if you like. Um, so we have to have a machinery of government that it has the checks and balances in place, but also is modern because we are still operating in a way that's very antiquated when it comes to digital voting, proportional representation, um, age of voting, the way that we do, you know, citizens assemblies. There are very many mechanisms that I believe that need to be brought into politics to make it a more modern machinery that people can access. Because there are, you know, there's this idea, which I absolutely agree in, that demos, you know, democracy does not work unless we really have engagement from people. And the lack of trust and the decaying of that machinery has led to an ever-growing um, disenfranchisement and disengagement with politics, which also is a two-edged sword. So not only is politics not working, but the engagement in politics isn't working either. So how do we address that? I think we have to get the machinery in a much more engaging, accessible, modern machinery so people can engage. So that's the second thing I'd say. The third thing I think I'd say is that I think we also have to look at who goes into politics. I really don't believe that politics should be a professional, uh, a, a profession. I think, you know, like so many countries, I would question how long people go into politics, they hold office, how often shuffles, cabinet shuffles. Again, there's these nuances about, you know, it is up to a prime minister to, to do his cabinet shuffles. But to in introduce a different sort of politician with a different sort of culture, I think what you'll see is a different way of operating. It'd be great if we can follow up on all three of those points. I, I guess I'm particularly intrigued by the third of them, though. So you said you don't think politics should be a profession. Um, how, how should it be organised? How should it work? It's interesting because I'm, I'm often looked at and I think I, I look at other countries and I like the idea of secretariats, the idea that there are people who, or boards who serve ministers, because you do have to have an elected individual who's responsible to the electorate. So I do think you have to have ministers in post. That is that is a given. But if you have them going into posts where they have no real world experience of that particular department or that particular policy area, 
then I believe you have to have an independent secretariat of experts who actually can inform and support. Um, so a technocratic level that, that supports the elected level, which also means you take some of the politics out of it, if you like, the small p politics or the, the party politics, and we get the other elephant in the room, which is very often not addressed, and I think at this moment in time is, is looming, is the short-term nature of our policy making when you're trying to address long-term problems, such as lack of growth, our educational system, the environment, my gosh, you know, NHS, how can we possibly have really, in effect, three-year policy cycles, because they then spend two years trying to figure out how they win the next election. Um, these, these are you would not do that. Again, I go back to business. We would tend to have a 10-year strategy. You know, you'd, you have to have a longer-term strategy and more collaboration. And the key, the key to all of this, everything we're discussing, because they, it is, this is such enormous change we're talking about for systems, um, infrastructure, institutions. For me, the key starts with proportional representation. Because if you have the system of two main parties who benefit from the system, where is the incentive for real change and real reform? And where is the incentive to collaborate and look at things in a much more collegiate, collaborative, longer term uh, basis? I know people say there are, there are ills with the proportional representation system. I think no system is perfect, as Churchill would say, but a key for me, has to be proportional representation. It's really interesting because I mean, a lot of what you're saying, um, I think, is emphasizing the importance of a more deliberative, more thoughtful, more inclusive kind of a democratic process. And, you know, I think there are a few people who would argue against that. Um, and actually, I mean, we in the Constitution Unit at UCL have been doing lots of public opinion research recently that shows very clearly that people do want a more deliberative, more thoughtful uh, approach to politics. But people are also quite conflicted. You know, they want that. But also, we asked them a question in a survey that we did around what are the key components of democracy. And the one that came top was basically voters' ability to throw the rascals out. It was accountability. Um, and there's often a bit of a kind of a tension in, the, in, a, in a democracy between deliberativeness on the one hand, which involves, you know, taking into account different views, being able to admit that maybe you were wrong, uh, negotiating things between elections, all of that on one side. And on the other side, accountability, where voters have a definite thing that they vote for. They can see whether they get it or not. If they don't get it, they can throw those people out of office and get someone else. How, and, and of course, PR, um, you know, tends towards the more deliberative, more consensus-based approach to politics. How do you how, how do you reconcile that with this this real public desire that I think is maybe particularly strong in the UK because of our traditions of democracy to have that strong accountability as well? I think there is uh, it's none of this is black and white, and I think we have to have steps of change if you like we, we you know reform doesn't happen overnight it it what you do is i think in responsible reform agenda is you trial it step by step and see what works and doesn't work and then you build on what works but one of the things i think is is very important is the ability for um well for the electorate midterm in whatever term of parliament to be able to 
hold a particular elective uh, representative to account. The idea that you can have an MP who is elected on a particular manifesto or on a particular colour of party, but then can sit as an independent if they stray or they do something, they can just literally say, well, I'm still saying, um, this is just an example I'm giving you, um, you know, you can stay an independent for another two to three years, but you were not elected as an independent. So I think there has to be a much much more uh, robust system of redress midterm for an MP that means that they have to be answerable to the electorate or there's a by-election. I just don't understand how you can then sit for two to three years independent when you were never elected on that um, mandate. So I think we that, that's just an example of the sort of redress I think we could bring in without too much problems. Um, the other one I think is very important that we think about, actually not even think about, but is a must for me, is that the ministerial code has to be put into law. We cannot operate by code any longer. I think we have to have an ethics or what I call a truth law. We have to have a contract of employment. I mean, how is it possible that we have MPs or people we elect who are paid for by the public uh, purse? They have there is an implicit contract that we have with them, but there's nothing that's written down. There's nothing to hold them to account. I mean, even something as simple as M an MP does not have to hold surgeries. They do not have to have surgeries on a weekly basis. And I am aware of so many MPs in where their constituencies haven't seen them in two, three years because that's not required. There are no contractual terms for your pay as an MP. So these are things, I think these are things we could bring in that are new, not too controversial. I think the public would accept because this is the norms they have to live in other parts of their lives that would signal a cultural change. Because sometimes you don't need to, I, I give an example of, of murder, you don't have to legislate for, you cannot kill somebody with an ice pick, a chair, uh, uh, you know, a knife, whatever. you don't have to go through those, those, the overarching principles are there. So I think it's about bringing in legal checks and balances, the signal that we, we as an elected body, people, expect our elected individuals to behave in a different way, to be answerable to us and to deliver for us and not just their party. I guess most MPs would say, and I think probably most kind of close Westminster observers would say that MPs are incredibly hardworking people. You know, they spend most of the week in Westminster doing parliamentary business and then a lot of their weekend is spent doing constituency activities as well. Um, I mean, it may be that some of them are employing slightly different models and versions of what it means to be a hardworking MP. Um, but I think quite a lot of them would, would put, push back quite hard in what you're saying there, that a lot of them are not really doing the job. And I, I mean, I know you've recently criticised some MPs for laziness in uh, not holding weekly constituency surgeries. I think a lot of them would say, well, We've we've changed how we interact with our constituents, but we're still trying to do it as much as we can. I can only tell you I've done 36 tours of the country last year. That is not what people are telling me. We go up and down the country and people say we do not know. We don't even know who our MP is. We've never seen them. They've never mentioned us in Parliament. Whatever they say, I'm more interested in the facts. They can claim, you know, the rest of us, all of us work. We work. Yeah, we, we have something, we have to go to work, we have clock in, clock out. We know when we're working. 
it is actually quite difficult to pin down what many MPs are doing. And I will tell you, so if it's difficult to pin it down from their point of view, we go to the electorate and we talk to people in their constituencies. And many people we have met and I have met say they do not believe, not only do they believe, but they have not seen their MP. They don't know who their MPs are. They don't tend to attend, they don't attend meetings. They don't come to uh, hustings. There are, and these are, this is not any one particular area. This is across the country and this is not even one particular party. But there, this is something that I have seen on the doorstep for in real terms, not from what the MPs are saying. I'm really struck in what you're saying that you're talking about a need for radical change in our politics and our political culture and so on. At the same time, a lot of the specific changes that you're talking about are quite technical changes in some ways that that you know many people would 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 maybe think as think of kind of tinkering with with the details of the system and put, putting a code that already exists onto a statutory basis for example and um i mean i was reading what you had written about a report that gordon brown produced uh, just towards the end of 2022 when he um proposed a, a set of quite radical reforms to the the structure of the union within the UK with much more uh, devolution of power and also replacing the House of Lords with with an elected chamber. And you you, you described that report. I was quite struck by the phrase. You said it was more more utopian than utilitarian. And and that was a criticism that you were giving of those reforms. So I mean it seems to me that there's something very interesting going on in what you're proposing here that you're you're suggesting that we need big big change but you're also suggesting that we need to be very careful about how we pursue that change and some kind of utopian mindset going into the 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 democratic reform process is just not going to get us anywhere would that be fair? Yes that would be fair because of uh, I would say the cost of doing that utilitarian and radical reform in one bite, if you like, is something that I don't believe that is realistic. We don't have, we are already, we have to look at the the contemporary backdrop that we're living in. We are at a time of crises financially, globally. We, We have to be, you can only bring in change that is realistic. You can't, you know, what happens is if you, if you propose reforms and change, that are so seismic at a time, because timing is always very important, at a time where it isn't possible, what happens is it just gets kicked down the road. I mean, I'll give you another example, the NHS. I think there have been 24 reports into the NHS. I mean, Gordon Brown's report, uh, uh, how many other reports have there been into the reform of the House of Lords? You know, and they all end up sitting on shelves. I haven't seen any of them particularly enacted in any real, real meaningful way. And my experience as a campaigner for 13 years, or 30 years, sorry, not 13, 30 years, is that we do change in, we, it's a stepping stone to the other side. You don't just leap a gorge in one go. You take stepping t- stones to the other side of getting there. And that way, you bring people with you, people who may not always agree with your position at the beginning. You test the veracity of the changes you're, bring, you're proposing, because something in theory, is never actually the same when you put it into practice. And the third is you have to be very, very mindful of the unintended consequences when you have many actors and many other people because the trickle down of your change is that it affects more people than you initially thought. And I can say that from from experience. So 
For that reason, I tread with caution and I prefer the stepping stone approach rather than jumping to the other side. What then would be the first step, the first stepping stone? I think first step would be to put in the ministerial code into law, the prerogative power into law, changes into the House of Lords, such as limiting the numbers in the House of Lords. I've proposed 400, practically because there are 400 seats, um, but also from the point of view of how the whole process of electing people to the Lords. There, there are a whole raft of reforms you can do, which again changes the nature of the operation of the institution. But I just go back to um, Gordon Brown's report and that report on the House of Lords is that I think it started, like many of the reports I've read on the House of Lords, to my mind, just my humble opinion, is that I think we're starting in the wrong place, is that we have to decide the purpose, what is the role of the Lords, unless we actually can ascertain collectively what is the purpose of the upper chamber, I don't think we can start talking about reforming it. This will be music to the ears of my colleague Meg Russell, uh, with whom we did a an episode of the podcast just before Christmas where we were talking exactly about these issues and uh, she uh, she has a very similar perspective on, on the Lords that, uh, you know, whatever you might think of as the desirable endpoint, the idea that you can achieve radical reform in one step is just not borne out by the history. It's, it's also in real practical terms, if you look at the legislation that received royal assent on the 28th of April last year, 2022, which were, you know, acts that are uh, definitely diminished our rights on the streets in, you know, uh, the Policing Act, the Electoral Reform Act, the, um, you know, the National Borders Act, all these acts that received royal assent. You know, it was the Lords who were actually picking over that legislation. And we're seeing it now with the Northern Ireland Bill and the, you know, the uh, Electoral Bill on retaining EU law. It is the Lords, if oddly, it's the unelected chamber that is a public pastime to criticise that is actually really scrutinising the legislation and asking the questions of the of the government of, you know, when it comes to, is this actually in the best interest of, of rights and freedoms and fairness? Okay. And what's your strategy for achieving these changes then? You've set up the True and Fair Party in order to pursue these objectives. What, what's your kind of theory of change, if you like? How are you thinking the party is going to be able to promote this agenda? Uh, uh, as I said, many people believe it's, uh, uh, maybe I'm being ut uh, utopian in viewing that a small party can actually create change. But I, and I always said I would never enter politics and I would never, <laughs> definitely would not go down this route. But it was actually, having been a campaigner for many, for three decades, but sitting last summer and reading those draft legislations, I realised that when we have a majority government, it's performative politics and that really campaigners have very little sway. Um, and what, and I come back to this key proponent, which is proportional representation has to be the red line. But also, post-COVID, there is a different sentiment in the public and in amongst voters. We as a nation, I think one of the things that's always frustrated me and possibly many other people is that we have not traditionally been people who have been particularly involved in politics and discussing politics and, you know, being worried about what happens to our democracy. We've sort of we, we have this maybe unconscious bias that if people come from the right school and speak properly, they know what they're doing and let's leave them because they're cleverer than us. But I think um, the the that social dynamic was uh, the, the veil, if you like, was lifted during COVID. 
and then Boris Johnson governments and and many of the things that I and others have been worried about since sort of for me personally it was after it was 98 and and, and that government and, and the way they were using particular powers um so I think that veil being lifted it's now become a common known if you like rather before than being an unknown it's a known amongst the public that things are not right that them and us that there are no checks and balances these are now conversations happening in homes across the country intergenerationally which has not really happened before or in this uh i think in the magnitude we are seeing at the moment and that is i think a, because of uh covid and and the uh, government that's happened that we've seen recently the last three prime ministers um and because of that we have an opportunity and so the true and fair party has come up i think is is a we're opportunistic it is a time where where three things have aligned one is the public sentiment has changed and is now aware of the weaknesses of our system. They're also very much disenfranchised. So the one strand of the public that we know is growing is those who feel politically homeless, disenfranchised, and are, and are saying it's not just one party, it's they're all the same. I mean, this is much bigger than the expenses scandal. This is expenses scandal on steroids for all parties. Um, so they don't, they're not looking for politicians. And the third thing I'd say is we are we're daring to say the things that probably is an open secret. And most people, uh, political observers, academics um, all know, practitioners know, but the general public don't necessarily know it in the terms in which we're talking about. So it's engaging them. And for me, the True and Fair Party success, it would be great if I won my seat in Epsom and Yule, but it's not about that. how do we elevate the conversations about change and about these issues? Because by doing that, I say we're a campaign in political clothing, because when I read the Elections Act in particular, my belief was that we do have to have political clothing. We have to have that party political clothing to be able to operate and say what we're saying, um, because I hadn't seen and we still haven't really understood what the secondary legislation for that act means. Um, but I think we, there will be there will be closing down of the ability for charities, campaigns, campaigners and other organizations to be able to to operate in as effective a way as they have done in the past. So, and then the third thing I'd say is, I, I don't think the polls are as clear as maybe some of the headlines are suggesting. And a hung parliament is a possibility. If that is a possibility, then small parties with a few votes who believe red lines are proportional representation, this is a once in, the op in a lifetime generational opportunity why wouldn't I take it? But it's interesting what you're saying, though. You said it's not about winning the seat that you're running in in Epsom and Yule. It's about uh, ensuring that you have a voice and you're able to maintain that voice despite the restrictions of the electoral laws that uh, make it hard for non-party campaigning organisations to take part. Yes. And some have expressed concerns that... Um, rather than just having that campaigning impact, there's a danger that you also split the vote uh, among those parties that support, broadly speaking, the sort of agenda that you're you're advancing. Do you think that's a reasonable concern? It was one of my major concerns, bearing in mind that I started Best for Britain, which was probably the biggest, you know, tactful voting campaign we did in, against Mrs May in 2017. And I ran one, um, Remain United, in the election in 2019. I'm steeped in tactical voting. I understand how that works. 
But I'm afraid my experiences from both of those is that um, the parties do not uh, tactically vote. You know, we do not have a progressive alliance. I think that's a myth. Um, We don't have it. It doesn't operate in in an effective way. Our parties do. uh, They're obstructive. So splitting the vote is is not uh, in a tactful voting way uh, or sorry not speaking about tactful voting i don't believe is uh, works in reality when it comes to to splitting the vote we have been absolutely meticulous in the data so our seats that we've chosen to date there are nine will be six more are outside of labor's top 350 target seats and outside the lib dems top 50 seats now, if you really want to be practical and achieve change, what you do is you concentrate realistically focusing your resources on the seats that you can win. In Epsom and Yule, Labour and Lib Dems have had 21 years, six elections to try and overturn the incumbent Conservative MP. They've not managed to do it. So I would suggest that it's not, you know, do you carry on doing the same thing over and over again? I think that's called madness. Or do you actually try something different? We have polled the very carefully those swing voters and those disenfranchised in what I call the blue corridors we're standing. And people are not looking to party politics of the old. They do want something new and they want a system that's changed. So our proposing of systemic change is the attraction. It is not that we're a new party. It's what we're advocating that is attracting people. We're going to have to wrap up in a moment, but just one final question before we do so. You're a person who has come into politics, wants to change politics. Lots of our listeners also care a lot about our democracy. Lots of young people who you know, have the vote for the first time or have recently had the vote for the first time who really care about the future of our democracy. What can they do in order to make a difference in, in the democratic system? I'd say number one is to engage with their peers and get them to turn out and register to vote. It is so important that you understand that, you know, you have to be part of the process. You cannot just sit by. And in this next election, that it will be, there will be barriers because of the ID that's required, the photo ID that's required. So I say you have a massive, young people have a massive job to do which is mobilizing other young people to have the right paperwork, the right ID and register in time to vote. You have to be part of the system. You have to be part of your, if you're silent, you're sitting by, you can't complain what happens next. You have to make your voice count. So I think that's a very, very important message to them is make, make sure that your voice matters, make sure you can vote. So that's number one. Number two, I'd say is think carefully about where you register to vote, because it's not about, um, you know, where you're educated or where you're living. So think carefully about where you register, because that is also a tactical choice and it's very important choice. And the third I'd say is look at very carefully at which parties are actually putting forward policies that will mean that you do not have to clear up the future, because at the moment there's an awful lot of, you know, um, plastering over the problems which means that the next generation will be the ones who have to pick up the pieces. Um, and, you know, I, I heard um, the Institute of Physical Studies say the other day, we could be end, end, entering the second decade of despair. And I agree with them. I do not believe we can leave it to the next generation. We have to be responsible. And I'd suggest they need to res- support parties who are being responsible as well. 
Sounds like very sound advice. Uh, thank you so much, Gina Miller. It's been so interesting to talk with you about these things. And uh, it would be great to have you back again sometime and hear how, how the campaign is going. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure. As I mentioned at the start, we are hoping that this will be the first in an occasional series of episodes with people from the real world of politics. So do look out for more in the months to come. In the meantime, next week, we will be looking at the recent troubles at Twitter and how they might affect the world of politics. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of time to rate or review us too. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was produced by Connor Kelly and Eleanor Kingwell-Bannum. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>